You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of the life of David. We're calling Hills and Valleys. With this week's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. If I were to say to you, this last year has been a scary year, I would assume that wouldn't come as much of a shock to anybody or much of a surprise. My guess is most of us have filled it, have felt that. And as we think through what that scariness is, you may not have had the same fears that other people had, but I think we've all walked in that this year. And on top of whatever you have faced individually or what your family has faced, on top of those things that are maybe personalized to you, what we have seen is fears that the rest of us have faced, faced corporately. COVID. In the beginning, what is it? How is it going to happen? What's going to happen with it? How long is this going to last? There were all those fears. Here we are 18 months later, and we still feel some of those. Then we start talking about getting a vaccine. And then it was, should we get the vaccine or should we not get the vaccine? If we get the vaccine, what does that mean? We've worried about masks. We're worried about mandates. We've got mandate issues going on, and we've got fears about that as well. And then we start thinking about the repercussions of this. What do we do with education? How do we feel about our children growing up in this situation? How have teachers felt about this? And then in addition, we think about livelihoods. What's happened to your livelihood? What has happened to your way of bringing in financial resources to meet and care for your family? Some of our church family have lost their livelihoods altogether in this. Some of us are waiting for opportunities to get back into whatever that was. We're surrounded by it. And then on top of that, we also have the opportunity to be fearful about other issues of social injustice and racism and all the other things that we see going on around us. If you weren't fearful when you walked in here, maybe you're a little more fearful now, right? You're welcome. Interesting. What do we do with this? In a recent poll that just came out, the question that was asked was, which feeling do you seek to avoid the most? The most. Now, I'm going to tell you that this was not, this was run uh, by a Christian organization. It wasn't just researching believers, but believers are included in these findings. Guess what the number one one was? Fear. 41% of Americans said, that's the feeling I want to avoid the most. Anybody caught off guard by that? Almost one out of every two people are saying, the number one thing I want to avoid is feeling fearful. Nobody likes to feel that. For believers, what do we do when we read words uh, that Paul wrote uh, to Timothy? For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. If you know the Lord and you have struggled in that fear thing, maybe you've been in that boat saying, Paul, I appreciate that you said that. I, I don't live in that. I don't feel that. I feel the fear quite regularly. So what does that do to us? It goes on and says the next thing that people fear that, that feeling the most is shame. Nobody wants to feel shame. That's one out of every four almost. And guilt, almost one out of every five. Think through those things. We've talked through the shame and the guilt recently, even in this series with David. We're going to be talking more about this fear one this morning. That same study came back and said, what is your top source of hope in 2020? Now, mind you, again, this wasn't just polling believers. 
40% of Americans said, you know where I find hope? I find hope that people are being kind to one another. I got to tell you, that doesn't seem to hold enough for me. I need more than that. Okay, so there's random acts of kindness. I can see a story on the news, you know, the last little clip where they say, oh, and in other news, here's some good news today. I need more hope than that. It comes back and says, 38% said their relationships. If that's the kindness of strangers in the first one, the 38% of those people that are around me that I have relationships with, I find hope in those. Well, good. The one that really is sad to me is this one. 36% say their religious faith. 36%. One out of every three says, the faith that I have, if I identify myself as being a person of faith, only one out of every three really is saying that my faith gives me hope. It will pro- this one probably won't surprise you. A third of people saying, my finances help me feel hope. If I know that I have enough money, I feel okay. I feel like I can make it through. The problem is what happens when money doesn't get you through COVIDs and vaccines and school and education and all those other things. We find ourselves in a position where can the things we put our hope in cash the checks that we need them to cash? Because in this world, what we know is finances just can't write the bill for everything, can they? The researcher came back talking specifically about believers when he said this, about half as many Americans who identify with a religious faith credit that faith with giving them hope during 2020. Is our faith doing enough? Is the faith that we have doing enough to provide us hope for today and tomorrow and every day thereafter? He goes on and concludes his thought this way. The Christian faith points followers of Jesus to a more hopeful future, which should shine even brighter during dark times. My guess is everybody in the room would say that would be true. We would want that to be true. And the question is, why does our hope not show up more often? Where is it? Because we have this fear that we live with so often. I will, it's been said, and I think it's true, is fear is a powerful motivator. It will compel you to act. Here's the other thing that's true. Is fear is a terrible motivator because it will compel you to act in ways you would not act otherwise. Those things drive us out, and we're going to see that today. I invite you to turn in your copy of Scripture to 2 Samuel chapter 24. As we move into this, we're going to see David step into something. As we've gone through this, we've called it hills and valleys. There's been ups and downs and highs and lows, and we've been all over the place with David in his spiritual journey. And we've, I think, traced a lot of ourselves in his spiritual journey. We've seen ourselves time and again, and and this morning is no different. We're going to see that again. So he finds himself in a precarious situation. It's been a time of battle. There have been rebellions. There's been a coup. He's lost people. People have turned on him. And we pick up the story in verse 24. Chapter 24, verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he, the Lord, incited David against him, saying, go number Israel and Judah. Now let's stop a minute. Your first hint that this hadn't been the first time is the word again. We don't know what's going on. Maybe David knows why the Lord is upset. Maybe the people know why the Lord's upset, but, but we're not, we don't have that recorded for us. We just know that the Lord is upset. There is judgment coming for something that's happened. 
And in this anger, we find the Lord is about to act and do something. We're told that he incited David. But let's begin with this idea. We've seen the Lord act and bring discipline, divine discipline into the lives, certainly of people in the scriptures, but probably you've seen it in your own life as well. Earlier in 2 Samuel, there's a story where they are transporting the Ark of the Covenant. And there were two very specific rules that were made about that, that the Lord made really clear. Number one was, it's not to ride on a cart, it's to be carried on poles. And so you transport it by carrying it. Number two, you carry it on poles because you're not allowed to touch it. So we find ourselves in 2 Samuel chapter 6, where they are transporting the ark on a cart. A definite no for what they had been told. And we read it this way. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Now, if you think with me, here's the, the ark, and it's riding on a cart, and if one of the oxen pulling it stumbles, you can imagine that the ark is going to rock a little bit. Now, mind you, the first act of disobedience in this is that they put the ark on the cart at all. The second is, what do you do when you see that ark begin to rock on the cart? What's worse, to touch it and stabilize it or to let it fall off the cart? Well, we know what Yuzah did. Yuzah put out his hand. What happened in that moment was in the anger the Lord was kindled against Yuzah and God struck him down there because of his error and he died there beside the ark of God. Now, i got to tell you, I struggle with this story. And in that, I find that my struggle is tied to a couple of things. Number one is, I find myself sitting in judgment on God. That's part of my struggle. Like, God, that's a little harsh. I mean, Lord, why? why? He'd say, well, he kept it from falling, Lord. And in that, you know what I see? Is I begin to justify and rationalize another person's sin. And if I'm real honest, I do that with my own sin any number of times a day, right? But now I'm, I'm trying to justify and rationalize, use a sin. And in that, as I sit in judgment on what God does, I'm questioning whether God's righteous. And I'm met with the question of how much disobedience does the holy sovereign God of the world and the universe have to tolerate in us before it's okay for him to discipline, right? And so when we go into this story, I'm going to tell you now, we're going to read some things in the story that sound incredibly harsh and they're painful. And I'm going to ask you and me to be mindful that we have no right to sit in judgment on God and who he is, because the story is going to be hard for us as we walk through this. So all of a sudden we see that it says the Lord incited David to go count. Now we've got to talk about that because what we know is, can the Lord cause somebody to sin? Well, there's this, another telling of this story in Chronicles. And there it says that Satan stood against Israel. Here we have that it's the Lord. In First Chronicles, it says it's Satan that stands against him, and he's the one who incited David to number Israel. And so there's a general principle when it comes to Bible study is that we have to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So we have one passage that said the Lord did it. We have one that says Satan did it. And those can't, be, those can't go together very well, can they? So let's jump to another passage. This is James. Let no one say when he is tempted that I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So we've got to do some reconciling. How do we feel about the fact that one passage says God is the one that incited this, and the other says that Satan did? Well, Scripture makes it really clear. The Lord doesn't tempt. That's not who he is. That's not what he does. 
James goes on to say this, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. This seems to be kind of like the story of Job, where Job is walking with the Lord, things are going well, Satan shows up and says, well, of course he's walking with you. Everything is good in his life. And the Lord said, if you want to test him, you can test him. But under the canopy of God, he had to create the space for it. That's probably what's going on here, is that you probably have a moment where things in David's life are going in such a way that Satan wants to bring temptation into him. Because James just made it really clear. Temptation begins inside of us. The opportunity to take something that's not inherently good or bad, but we try to take something and we try to make something out of it that it's not. That's, I think, where we find ourselves. And so all of a sudden, he says, I want you to go count the number of Israel and Judah. Well, if you're the king, you have this goal of always being battle ready right? You have to be prepared that should a battle or a warring army come across your path, that you're ready to go. So he finds himself in a battle where David all of a sudden, and we know this is a sin, and we're going to get into that later because it becomes crystal clear in this passage that it is. There's nothing wrong with counting per se. That's not the problem. When we were going through all the COVID protocols and we had to remove every other row and we had two seats between households or family units and so forth, we had to count. That doesn't mean we were being sinful. The question is, what does that number represent? And if you're the king and you're trying to keep your, ad, your army battle ready and your confidence is in the number of your army, you got a problem. So where does it go wrong? Well, look with me down here starting at verse I'm sorry, verse 2. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, now let's just stop a second. If you've been a part of the story, Joab's name is a name we keep hearing over and over again. And Joab becomes a person right here that speaks truth. He speaks truth incredible truth to David. What does he say? May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the King still see it. But why does my Lord, why does my Lord the King delight in this thing? See, Joab knows what's going on. Joab looks at David and said, David, you're falling into a trap. You think that this is about the numbers of your army. What you don't understand, David, is it's never been about the size of the army. Remember when you went up against Goliath? It was never about that. It was always about our God. It was always about who he is and what he's doing. And he says, you know what? You go into battle. If the Lord wants to increase the size of our army a hundredfold, he can do that. David, what, what is your thing with this count? It's never been about our armies. Our armies have never measured up when you look on, humans, on human terms. Here's the deep reality, and this is true for you and me today. You and God are a majority, and no matter which battle you fight, and we fall into the traps of looking at our resources, give me the numbers. Let me see where I stand so that I can manage and maneuver whatever I have to face. And Joab says, it's not about that. Well, unfortunately... And maybe you've been here before where you got wise counsel and you ran right past it. Look at verse 4. But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. David, why? Why? I'm sure David said something really eloquent like most of us parents have said at some point. Because I said so. 
And off he goes. And they have to go count. Matter of fact, if you drop all the way down to verse 8, you see this. So when they'd gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. How long did it take? Nine months and 20 days. Using all the resources to take a census that wasn't needed. Nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. 1.3 million. 1.3 million. We have an accounting of this same thing in Chronicles as well, and the number's a little bit different there. We're not quite sure how they, they did the census, uh, and so if you try to reconcile those numbers, maybe it's captured by the fact that he says there's 800,000 valiant men which speak, spoke to their, uh, their, their elite soldiers, and so maybe that's the difference between the general militia and the elite soldiers. We're not really sure. But isn't it intriguing that David wants to know, how big of an army, just in case the enemy comes, how big is my army? And the number comes back, 1.3 million people. Ah, what do you do with that? Do you feel good? You feel good? you got a count of your resources? You know exactly what you're going to have to face now, David. That's what you've got. Well, let's look at what happens. Verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I've done very foolishly. How do we know it's a sin to count? It's not a sin to count. It's a sin to place your confidence and your faith in the resources that God has put around you. That's the sin. And that's what David did. How do we know? Because David knew what he did. David's the one that said, I've grieved. I've acted very foolishly. I put my faith and my confidence in a number. Now, I would ask you to consider, when you get fearful, have you noticed those moments where you try to seize control in some environment of your life? You have that moment where like, I can't do anything about this huge thing happening over here, but you know what? I can clean my dishes really well, right? I can wash my hands again. Whatever that thing is that you do, and that gives way to so many addictions in our life, right? We can find ourselves addicted to food. We can find ourselves addicted to exercise. We can find ourselves addicted to all kinds of immoral things. We can find ourselves addicted to protecting our calendar. No, 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 I'm not going to keep, I'm not going to schedule anything. I need to keep my options open because I want to be in control of everything I can be in control of. And if I sign up for something, then I might give over some of my control and make a decision at a later date that I don't want to give up today. And the moment we find ourselves seeking moments of control, we find ourselves getting into real trouble. And that's what got David into this. He feels overwhelmed, clearly, and he says, I need to know what I have available to me. So he begins to count up his army. And so he finds himself in this. And we don't even know how long it lasted, right? If you look with me from verse 9 to verse 10, we don't even know how long it took other than he gets the number and if you're David, maybe you look up and say, hey, 1.3 million, I like our odds. I feel pretty good about it. I mean, this isn't even the whole militia. This is just my, my strong soldiers, my warriors. I'm ready. We're ready to go. Only all of a sudden in that moment, he's grieved. Maybe you've been there too. I have. Where you think, I'm going to exercise some level of control in my life, and that's going to free me up, and I will feel better about things. I can be so strange that when I have a to-do list, I'll make a to-do list and I'll put the first three things on there, things I've already done, just so I can check it off. Like, oh, I'm killing this list, man. I'm really, I'm in a good place. Look, I've already done three things. I just made the list. We find ourselves in a position where when we start trying to seize control, things start happening. Fear is a powerful motivator. It will compel you to do things 
Fear is a terrible motivator because it will compel you to do things you wouldn't normally do. And he's now trusting in the size of his army, not trusting in the Lord that has brought him to this place. All of a sudden, when he sees it for what it is, he has this moment where he breaks down. Now, here's what's really great. The guilt begins to set in. If you've been with us in this journey at all, when we talked about his sin with Bathsheba uh, a few weeks ago, when all of a sudden guilt takes on and he wants to hide from it and he wants to cover up his deeds, he's still trying to control. He's trying to control the carnage of his sin now. And so he ends up getting Uriah killed. And so we talked about Psalm 51, if you were here, and then we jumped over to Psalm 32. I want to remind you what Psalm 32 said. When he said, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. Selah, stop, pause, reflect. See, I think he learned this in the sin of Bathsheba, where he said, you know what? I know what it's like when I hide my sin. I know what it's like when I don't confess my sin. I am the one that spiritually just is zapped. But he also learned that when I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover it, when I came clean, Lord, and I said, I confess my transgressions, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So I'll pause and reflect. Yes, that's who he is. That's what he does. And I think he's already learned that because when we come to this passage, we look up and all of a sudden, where it said is, uh, it's 1.3. And he looks at it and goes, you know, 1.3 million is nice. That doesn't solve my problem. I thought a number was going to solve my problem. It doesn't solve my problem. Just counting up the resources I have does not solve my problem because I can't put my faith or my trust in my resources. There's not enough of them. And so all of a sudden, David has this moment where he says, what am I doing? Maybe you've been there. Okay, I got what I thought I wanted. Turns out what I thought I wanted isn't really what I want at all. I want my God. I do not need to know the size of my army. He finds himself in this terrible situation and look what happens in this. So he goes before the Lord and he says, Lord, I need you to act on this. Forgive me. Look at verse 12. The Lord's called a prophet named Gad to go talk to David. I'll send verse 12. Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you, choose one of them that I may do it to you. Now, if you've been here any, any number of Sundays, you probably have heard me say, you can choose your behaviors, you cannot choose your consequences. This seems to be the lone exception that I can come up with. As Gad shows up and says, okay, the Lord's going to bring divine discipline into your life, David. You've got three options. Choose which of the three options you're going to have. We're going to read them here in a minute, but one of them is three, uh, is three years, one of them is three months, and one of them is three days. Okay? So pick the intensity and the breadth of who it's going to hit. All right. So if you look back down with me uh, in verse 13. So Gad came to David and said, shall three years of famine come to your land? That's option one, three years of famine. Now, as we think about that, famine would hit everybody. Probably David's impact or the impact on David would be minimal. He's the king. He has storehouses of food. He'll be fine. The people will suffer. He probably will be fine. Look at the second one. Or you will flee three months before your foes while they pursue you. You can go three years of famine. You can go three months of pursuit with your enemies pursuing you. Now again, that will be painful. But mind you, David has an army of 1.3 million people. Your enemies are going to pursue you, David. You may lose some of your, your soldiers, but you're probably going to be okay. But it's not as, intense, it's not as long as three years. 
look at the most intense one. Or shall there be three days pestilence in the land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Three years of famine, three months of being on the run, or three days of pestilence. Here's the thing about three days of pestilence. is It doesn't matter if you're in the palace. It doesn't matter if you have warehouses or storehouses of food. You're going to be hit. You're going to be hit. Three years, three months, or three days. And look at what David says. Then David said to Gad, the prophet, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. No, that famine's going to be rough. If my enemies pursue me and capture me, I'm going to entrust myself into the hands of my enemies. I don't trust them. But you know who I know to be good? I know that my God is good. He learned that through the Bathsheba stuff. We learned that through, uh, through Psalm 32. But the Lord has, and he also learned the reality of Exodus 34. We've talked about this verse several times. When the Lord reveals himself, he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. David said, if I'm going to fall into the hands of somebody being captive to somebody, I fall into the hands of God because I know who he is. I know that he abounds in steadfast love. I know he redeems. I know he's faithful. I know he restores. I know that he forgives. And he's learned all of those things throughout the stories that we've been telling from week to week to week. Discipline is coming. He got to choose it. Normally we don't. And he didn't choose the one that takes out everybody but him. He just says, you know what? I'm going to trust myself to the Lord. Lord, it's your call. What you're going to do, I entrust myself to you because I know you. I know your character. I know your heart. I know who you are. And he said, that's what I'm going to entrust myself to. Well, look back down with me at the story because it is about to get sad. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working the destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. 70,000. 70,000 souls. I find myself a little bit like Yuza. Lord, but why? Lord, why? Why is this the right, fair punishment? And the moment that I asked the question, I started asking myself, Lance, who are you to sit in judgment about what the righteous God of heaven does? It's not my role. It's not my place. I'm certainly not sinful. I'm certainly not righteous. Who is the Lord that he should give answer to me? We learn a little bit about that from Job, right? If you're familiar with the story of Job. 70,000. We talk about Scripture with this law of sowing and reaping as don't be fooled, you will reap what you sow. David is the shepherd king who learned how to shepherd people out in a pasture caring for sheep. And God said, having learned that shepherd's heart, I'm going to bring you in to shepherd my people. And David now finds himself in a position where because of his sin, the sowing of his sin has had reaping consequences across his kingdom. 70,000 people. 70,000 people with stories that matter. 70,000 people who are made in the image of God. 
And what we see is that Shepherd King has created an environment where his sin has had catastrophic consequences. And the Lord gets to a part where he just says to the angel, enough, stop. There's too much carnage. If you're David and you're watching it, I I guess you and I would look up and say, what happened? What went wrong here? See, he's the shepherd king. We read in John what the good shepherd's like, and this is Jesus about himself. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's what the good shepherd does. That's what our Savior did. Here the shepherd king finds himself in a predicament where it's his failure that's created death. See, that's the good news of the gospel, right? Is that David's sin led to the death of others. The good shepherd, the beauty of the gospel is our sin led to our Savior's death. He had no sin. He didn't earn death. He laid down his life and said, I will pay for your sin because I have none. And then I can walk out of the grave on day three and I can extend eternal life to you. And that's what happened. That's the good news of the gospel is there was a shepherd that laid down his life for you and me. That's the good news. David's not there yet. David finds himself in a position where it's his sin that's led to the death of 70,000 people. Well, I think he's broken by it. If you look back at the story, the angel of the Lord uh, stops doing what he said. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned, I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me, against my father's house. Our shepherd's heart's back. It came back. It wasn't there all along. It had a moment where it stopped functioning as a shepherd's heart. Then he looks out across the pasture of his people and he says, Lord, they didn't do it. This is me. Lord, call it off. Bring all of that judgment against me. I'm the rightful person for this. Do you hear his heart? All of a sudden, what we know is going on He's been caught by the, uh, the catastrophic consequences of his sin. And all of that is there. What led to this? We shared the, I shared this quote a couple of weeks ago, talking about temptation that there, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, where he said, in that moment of temptation, God is quite unreal to us. God loses all reality, and only our desire for creature is real. The only reality is the devil. Satan does not fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. See, David's looking around, and in that temptation, I need to sense control. I need to feel how strong I am. All of a sudden, it's not that he hates God. He forgets God. He forgets that God is the biggest ally in his world. Victory has always come to him because of God. And in this, it's not that he hates God. He forgets God. And then all of a sudden, his ability for discrimination and decision-making are gone. Because what happens in that moment is this, right? When we forget God, we will forget his image bearers, those who reflect God. Because it happened with Bathsheba, it happens again with 70,000 people. If I can forget who God is, then the people who bear the image of God don't matter to me. They're just collateral damage. They are just pawns. And David has this moment where he sees 70,000 of those image bearers suffer and his consequences And it strikes him. And he has that moment where he says, what have I done? What have I done? I have created this catastrophe. And all of a sudden, with the remembering of God, you remember the image bearers. Isn't it interesting? 
that Jesus seemed to capture this premise in this in Matthew 22. Teacher, Jesus, what is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is great in the first commandment. Remember God. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On those two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Remember his image bearers. See, all of a sudden, that's the path. Remember God, and then you can remember his image bearers because the full flow chart is this, isn't it? We forget God and his image bearers. That leads to fear, and then it leads to our attempt to control, and then that leads to sin and collateral damage because our attempts to control situations will always create collateral damage. That's the reality of the world we live in. The anecdote for fear is to remember God. That's always going to be it. Not what's going on around us, not this, that, or whatever system's in place, not who's in office, not what things are going on. Our trust is always to be in God. He is the one who goes before us. We find ourselves in this dangerous predicament where this is what happens to us. Well, look down with me if you would. So verse 18, Gad the prophet shows back up. On that day came, uh, and Gad that came that day to David and said to him, go up, raise up an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah, the Jebusite. So I want you to go, and I want you to build an altar. I want you to make an offering to the Lord because of your sin. David now sees it. He says, put it all on me. Gad shows up and says, that is the problem. You need to go make offerings. So here he goes. Verse 19, so David went up at Gad's word as the Lord had commanded. And when Arunah looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on towards him. And Arunah went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. Arunah said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? Now, won't you think with me for a minute? He understands what's going on with the pestilence. I mean, he's not been uh, spared from that. So he knows what's going on. What he has no idea is that David's sin is what created all this. He has no idea. So he's out there, pestilence, we're in whatever day we're in of the three-day pestilence, and he sees the king and the royal entourage coming to him, and he did what probably any of us would do. He kind of gets down and pays homage. This is the king. And he looks up the king and like, why are you here? You've come to my place. What an amazing moment. And all of a sudden, Arnaz said, why does the Lord come to my place? David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. I'm here to stop the plague. I'm going to make an offering and we're going to stop this plague. If you're Arnaz, you're like, come on, come on. Whatever you can do, let's do that. You're a man after God's own heart, David, right? If you're going to offer this, then let's do it. And look at what he says. Then Arna said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what he seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offerings, the threshing sledges, the yoke of the oxen. All this, O king, Arna gives to the king. And Arna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. If you're him, he looks up and says, take whatever you need, man. Whatever I got, it's all yours. You, you, you make the best offering you can make. You get everything of mine. Just take whatever it is. Make the offering. And maybe, maybe the Lord ends this thing and we're over and we can just move on. Problem with that generous offer, right, is what does it cost David? He shows up just because he's the king. It costs him nothing. He doesn't have to do anything for this. 
Arnaud says, just take whatever you want, whatever you have, just take it. Incredibly generous offer. But look at where David's shepherding heart comes back. Verse 24, the king said, no, no. But I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the, the Lord my God, uh, to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David brought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. No. No, Arnaud. I have to pay this. I have to pay this. This was my sin. This was my evil that I brought upon everybody. I can't let you pay my price. See, his shepherding heart comes back. He's caring again about people. These are image bearers. They matter. I can't let you pay my penalty. Again, that's the good news of the gospel. Is Jesus looked at you and me and said, I'll pay that penalty for you, for me, for you. That's the good news of the gospel. Paying somebody else's price. David had a price to pay. He wouldn't let Arnu pay his because it was his. The Lord Jesus, who has no price to pay on his own, has offered to pay my price and your price. And if you're here this morning and you don't know him, that offer extends to you. That he says, let me pay your price so that you might have a relationship with me. That's the good news of the gospel. Well, look at what happens here. Verse 25, And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Why? Because that's who God is. It's who God proclaimed himself to be. It's who God's people have always experienced him to be. It's who you and I experience him to be today. It's who he will be tomorrow and every other day forward. It's who our God is. Loving kindness, steadfast love, relents from bringing calamity, offers forgiveness, covers over our iniquity, offers you and I eternal life. Fear is a powerful motivator. It will compel you to act. Fear is a terrible motivator because it will compel you to act in ways you normally wouldn't. So when do we change? David obviously had to change because he learned. It forced him to change. And I do have this, it's been said, and I think it's true. When it comes to change, we associate pain with change or change with pain. We'll change when the pain we associate with the status quo. Whatever is going on in my life right now, I accept a certain amount of pain in my life, but I'll stick with it, right, until this moment that the great, uh, greater than the pain that we associate with change. I will deal, we have pain with change, but whatever's going on in my current life has some pain too. When will I decide to make the change? When the pain that's going on in my everyday life becomes greater than the pain that I associate with change. That's when I'll change. I may have some dysfunctional stuff going on in my life, and I'm okay with it maybe at some level until I see, because I don't want to change, until I decide, you know what, I'm going to change because I'm creating more pain by not changing. David got to a point where he said, collateral damage. Isn't it interesting that if David said, I need a census, I need to know how strong I am based on the number of people around me, the part of the consequences was the Lord said, subtract 70,000. And David at first, I'm not sure, cared. I don't mean that to be ugly, but when you forget God, you'll forget his image bearers. And I think that's what set this whole thing up. Because we find ourselves in a position where we have to deal with these things. So how do we live in that? How do we walk in that? 
Well, sometimes we've got to learn lessons over and over again. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes we don't learn the first time. It's interesting. This little plot of land where he bought the threshing floor, as Dr. Merrill would tell us, is also the same space where Abraham had offered Isaac in Genesis 22. It's also the same space that Solomon later built his temple. Because we keep coming back. And God wants to show us and teach us something. I want to show you something. The worship team's going to come up, and we're going to close here in a minute. I'm going to show you five verses. You may have heard it said that Scripture has some 365 fear not verses, or that we don't need to fear. There's enough for one for every day of the year. And if forgetting God leads us to fear, which leads us to try to grab some level of control, then we may find ourselves in a position where if we can remember God, then we don't fear. But part of that is recognizing that Scripture tells us not to fear. But it's more than that. It's more than just the fact that God says not to fear. He tells us a number of times what He's going to do in its place. So I'm going to go through five verses here with you pretty quickly and just make note of a couple of things in it. And then I'm going to pray, and the worship team is going to, to lead us in a closing song. But before they do, these five verses are going to stay up on the screen for you uh, for a little bit of time for you to just read them and reflect on them. Because I'm going to invite you in those, in those moments to think through and consider where you've seen this to be true in your life. Okay? So here's the first one. Genesis 15.1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. It's not just not to fear Abram, I know you feel vulnerable. It's not that you just don't have to fear. Know this, Abram, I'm your shield. I'm your shield. You think you can put up a shield? It doesn't matter if you had 1.3 million. That's an inadequate shield. Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield. I go before you. Exodus 14, Moses said to people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Who's going to do it? The Lord's going to do it. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Fear not. Fear not. He's fighting on your behalf. You can stop talking. It's not about you. Isaiah 41, For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not. I am the one who helps you. Let me be it. Don't fear. I'm your helper. I've got you by the hand. You do not walk this battle alone. Isaiah 43, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Don't fear. I've got this. I know you. I know your name. You're mine. You don't need to be afraid. I've got it. Luke 12, fear not, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls, stream services live online at gracechurch.com, or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.